Good morning, everyone. If you want to take your seats, grab your coffee. This is our last session in our series um, about reading uh, scripture in the Anglican tradition. And Dr. Greg Lynch here is going to be talking about a man called Gadamer today, who I don't think was in the Anglican, was he? Or, no, not at all, right. <laughs> and you might be wondering, well, why are we ending with this? But it's just, we've been talking a lot about the interpret, how the interpretation of scripture and how do we read scripture. And um, Greg has, uh, is a student of Gadamer. He uh, teaches Gadamer right, at North Central College. And Gadamer has a lot of interesting ideas about how we read in general. And I think a lot of them can be applied to how we read scripture. Um, so we're going to leave lots of time for questions and hopefully maybe even a little bit of a roundup about how we enjoyed this series and what we got out of it. But uh, for now, let's welcome Greg. Right. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, hi, thanks, everybody. Yeah, so as Mary said, uh, the task I've been given for today is to talk a little bit about this philosopher named Hans-Georg Gadamer. Has anyone heard of Gadamer before? Yeah, so what, who, who knows a thing, or, or at least takes themselves to know a thing about Gadamer? What, what kind of background do we have here? Mm, well, <laughs> he's, so he's, he's certainly very influenced by Lutheranism. He has a great deal of respect for a number of Lutheran thinkers. Gadamer himself, interestingly enough, was not a Christian. Um, he was not a, a man of faith at all. And he talks about this with, with actually a bit of, of regret, right? He always says that I, I've always admired people of faith and wish that I had, could have the courage to have faith, but I've, I've never found it within myself to do that, which makes him maybe an interesting choice to, to end this series about biblical interpretation. Um, but as we'll see, I, I, I think Mary's right that there are some important things here. But yeah, very much working out of a Lutheran tradition while not uh, necessarily a Lutheran himself. Other, other things about Gadamer, background uh, ideas that we have. Yeah, lots of stuff about understanding. Good, yeah. So Gadamer is, is generally taken to be kind of the, the main 20th century figure working in the field of hermeneutics. Is that a term that uh, we're all familiar with here? Hermeneutics is just the, the theory or the philosophy of, of understanding and interpretation. Um, so if you're reading like an academic work on hermeneutics, there's a very good chance that you'll come across Gadamer's name in that. Good, any other thoughts or background about Gadamer? He is German, yeah. Uh, he was born in Marburg, Germany, if I remember right. Born in 1900, died in 2002, right at the ripe old age of 102, yeah. And uh, interestingly, most of his work on hermeneutics, the work for which he's most known, he didn't publish any of that until he was 60 years old. Um, so he had a whole kind of career before that, uh, working on Plato and Aristotle primarily, and then um, published most of his hermeneutic work later on. Mary? Yeah, I... That, that's right, yeah. God, Godmer was, was influential enough in hermeneutics that, that not just philosophers, but even normal people, uh, if they take a class on, on hermeneutics, are often going to encounter Godmer there. Yeah, so Father James asked me a few months ago, uh, he said we were doing a, a catechesis series on uh, 
biblical interpretation and asked if I would come in and say a little bit about Gadamer. And I said, well, that seems like a good idea to me, seems like a good fit. And so I was starting to think through, okay, what, what do I want to talk about here? What would be the right part of Gadamer to address? And then that following Sunday, Mary came up to me and said, oh, Greg, good, I heard you're going to give a talk. I'll get you a copy of the book. And I didn't say this at the time. I didn't know there was a book. Uh, I, was, I was saying, like, I already have all of Gadamer's books. I don't really need it, but no, there was... So, so I found out there was this other book about this thing called figural interpretation. I didn't quite know what that, what that meant, and it made me, I'll admit, a little bit nervous. I was like, I don't know what this book is going to say, if it's going to be anything I'm qualified to talk about, let alone anything that, that Gadamer is relevant to. But then Mary sent me a copy of the book, and I, I started reading it, and, and those fears were alleviated, because it's like, oh, actually, that figural interpretation has quite a lot to do with, with what Gadamer's up to. In fact, Gadamer, I was, I was happy to see, even got a shout-out in the introduction. There was a, a brief reference to him, and, and this idea that all understanding is application, which is a, an idea that we'll come back to later. So what is Gadamer, how does he connect to figural interpretation as we've been talking about it here? I think there's a lot of, of points of connections that we might explore. What I thought might be a helpful thing to focus on here, especially maybe toward, toward the end of it, is that I think Gadamer can give us resources for getting over a kind of worry or uneasiness that the idea of figural interpretation might leave some of us with, and certainly has if not people in this room, has left lots of other people with. Have you guys had this experience that even if you can see the beauty of these various figural interpretations that you've been talking about in here, even if you're willing to grant that this kind of interpretation has a, has a very good pedigree in the tradition, and even like Jesus himself seems to, <laughs> seems to read uh, scripture figurally, that even if we write, okay, yeah, I see that, that, that this is right, do you have the feeling, at least in the back of your mind sometimes, that like, yeah, I'm not quite so sure about this. This opening the door to these figural readings makes me a little bit nervous or a little bit uneasy. Has anyone had that experience or that thought as you've gone along? Yeah, so what, how come? What, right, the, the, the technical term we philosophers use for this is the hermeneutic heebie-jeebies. Um, so why... Why is the idea of figural interpretation prone to uh, cause a case of the heebie-jeebies in us? It, what's the grounds for this? Peter. Are we on? So I think for me, one of the things is like, okay, you have the written laws and the commandments, and how far does this wiggle room interpretation actually go? Yeah, good. So yeah, figural readings seem to open up some wiggle room in interpretation, and, and we we might worry maybe that things can get a little too wiggly if we're not, if we're not careful. Other, other concerns or, or ways of putting this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're, uh, we're, we're very attuned to formal material causes, uh, not so much final causes. It's, uh, we, well, we can't know that. And, so, oh, now we're going over there and we're looking at this whole other side uh, of Scripture that is not reducible to, to easily discernible facts and yes or no. The binaries are gone. The, uh, yeah, for someone formed in our age, I think it's, it's deeply unsettling. Yeah, good. You know, living, living on this side of the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, um, 
we often have the thought that, well, there's, there's truth only where there's objectivity, right? And objectivity means that it can be measured and made precise, that it can be made scientific or at least scholarly in some important way. And it might seem that uh, figural interpretation doesn't always fit that bill, that it's kind of you know, scholarly, suspect in a scholarly way. Yeah. Then there's no there's no need to have room for interpretation. Yeah. Right. If we just we just write it down, everything very clearly, everything well delineated, then everybody can read it, draw the exact same conclusions, and understand how to apply it. And I I think that's just a I think that's inherently flawed. Yeah. Good. I, I, <laughs> Gautamer would agree with that, right? Yeah. But I, but I think you you have put your your finger on an important idea. We have that. Yeah. Well, if right. If you just say what you mean clearly enough, then interpretation isn't really necessary, right? It will, it will just be obvious to everyone, this is what you mean, and the one true correct meaning of the text will, will kind of just make itself apparent. Yeah, so we might think that hermeneutics is required at all only when the author is a little bit dicey, which is probably not something we want to say about scripture. Um, other, yeah. So, so what I'm hearing in, in a lot of this here is that right, part of the worry about figural interpretation is that once we open the door to figural interpretation, well, now it seems that one and the same text can be legitimately interpreted in multiple different ways. Right? That there's, that there's not just the one right interpretation that is the same for everybody. And I think connected up with that is... The sphere maybe particularly that's going to come out of some more conservative kind of traditions. Although, importantly, it's, it's the same fear that like theological liberals will often have about this kind of thing. And that's the, that's the idea that, well, look, when you open the door to figural interpretation, then your reading is no longer constrained by the original setting of the text. It's no longer constrained by the author's intentions, what the author would have taken himself to mean, what the original people reading this text would have taken, them, taken him to have been saying. And you might think that once those limits or restrictions are removed, right? once we're no longer hemmed in by the author's intentions and the text's original meaning, well, now all bets are off. right? Now anything goes. Now it's just a free-for-all. And now it seems, well, I can just read the text however I want to, right? I can make this text say whatever I feel like having it say, or just whatever happens to pop into my mind due to the you know, particular burrito I ate before I, read it, before I read it or whatever. And that's a real concern, right? It seems to open the door to a kind of hermeneutic relativism or maybe even a kind of hermeneutic nihilism. Um, and indeed, there are hermeneutic relativists and nihilists among us who have been very influential. Um, and, and you might think that, well, that's just the path you're headed down once, once you say that it's legitimate to read into the text a meaning that the original human author could not possibly have seen there. Now, 
What I want to suggest is that Gadamer gives us some reasons to think that that worry is misplaced. That this dichotomy between either the text is limited to what the original audience and the author intended, or just anything goes at all, is a false dichotomy. There's a big middle ground in between there, which is not just acceptable, but Gadamer thinks exactly where interpretation needs to be. In fact, Godmer is going to say that not only is it okay to go beyond the author's intentions and the original meaning if you want to understand a text, he wants to say that you have to do it. This is a necessary part of taking a text seriously. Now, Godmer thinks this is true for all texts, whether we're talking about the Bible or Homer or Plato or you know, the issue of Vogue that is sitting on your kitchen table, right? whatever, uh, whatever it may be. So I'm going to follow that and talk in kind of general terms just about what textual understanding in general is. But we're going to try to keep bringing that back to the specific case of Scripture because I think you could make the case that the things Gadamer says about text in general are, are even more true in the case of Scripture. It's, it's even more uh, clear that that's the way Scripture ought to be. All right, let's dive into it here then. There's, there's kind of two main ideas that I, um, from Gadamer that I want to try to bring out here to, to go down this road. To start out, it might be helpful to, to think a little bit about just communication in general, right? When we're interpreting, when we're understanding, that's directed toward communication, whether that's written or spoken communication. And so you might think that what you think about interpretation is going to be rooted in what you think communication is all about. And here's a really common and really influential idea, especially from like the 19th century up through the present day, about communication. There's this common thought that communication is fundamentally a type of self-expression. What am I doing when I communicate? What am I doing when I speak or write something? Well, I'm trying to take some information about myself. The fact that I feel a certain way, or that I have had certain experiences, or that I hold certain opinions or views about things. And I'm trying to take these inner parts of myself and externalize them so that other people can know about them. And that, I think, at least at first blush, is a pretty plausible view, right? What is Plato doing in the Republic? Well, he's telling us what he thinks about the nature of justice and the ideal state, right? What is an artist doing when they write a poem or paint a painting? Well, they are expressing the feelings or the moods or the experiences that led them to create this work in the first place. So there's this really common view, and this view is, is at the bottom of or undergirds this idea that, that to know the meaning is to know the author's intentions, that communication is primarily a matter of a speaker externalizing something internal, expressing themselves in some way. But as plausible as I think that view might seem, I, I think there's also reason to question it. There's reason to think that this, this maybe isn't, isn't the right story. And so here's, here's an imaginary scenario, which hopefully isn't too close to the truth, um, but uh, <laughs> A scenario we might consider to, to try to get at why this idea is, is suspect. So suppose that one night after the kids are in bed, right, your spouse comes up to you and says, honey, look, I, I think we need to talk. We are just 
spending way beyond our means in this household. We don't make nearly enough money to justify this expensive house and this expensive car that we have. We really need to, to roll back on our spending, right? We really need to start tightening our belts. So your spouse says that, and suppose that you take him or her by the hand, right, and you look them very sincerely in the eyes, and you say, honey, thank you so much for sharing that. I recognize that that is your opinion, right? I can tell, I know given your background, given your particular personality quirks, it makes perfect sense that you would think that. So thank you for sharing that. Rest assured that I now know what your view is. <laughs> Good talk, right? Let's watch a movie. How, how are you going to respond if, if your spouse uh, addresses you in this way? Okay, yeah, so, right, maybe, right, maybe, maybe, maybe things will really take a turn for the worse here. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it seems like, you know, no, we're not just going to watch a movie, right? There's more discussion to be had here. Yeah, right, it seems like you're not listening to me, right? You don't understand me. You're not hearing me. Yeah, good, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. Yeah, that's the, yeah, the, the good marital therapy way to, to deal with, with a situation like this. Yeah, good. I think we all recognize, right? Understanding has not occurred here. Genuine hearing has not occurred here. Even if your spouse is totally sincere, right? Your spouse, let's assume, really does recognize that that is your opinion, really does recognize that those are your feelings, they've still missed the point, right? Because the point of you talking to your spouse is not to alert them to the fact that you have certain opinions, right? It's not to tell them something about yourself and your view of things. The point is to tell them about the things, right? You want their attention to be drawn not to you and your perception of the world, but drawn to the world. You want them to look at the truth about the state of your finances. That's what you want them to recognize. That's what you want them to focus on. Not anything about yourself. Now, it's true that in telling them this, you will also express something about yourself. You will also reveal to them what your opinions are. But that's not the point. The point is not to tell them what you think. It is to show them something about what is the case. And this is one of the key claims of and the key ideas of Gadamer's hermeneutics. Right? Here's how he puts it. Let's find the quote that I wrote down here. Right? He says, this is the essence, the soul of my hermeneutics, that to understand someone else is to see the justice, the truth of their position. Right? So the goal is not just to see the other person's position. It's to see the truth of the position. It's to recognize what Gadamer calls dizaka the subject matter that is under discussion or that is brought up in the other person's discourse. So, so actually, Gadamer thinks that, no, the, we are trying to see what they're saying as true, not simply as what they take to be true, but as something true. Now, I think what's motivating your concern here, which is completely legitimate, is that 
sometimes that's not going to work, right? Sometimes that's not going to be the case. There are times where we have to conclude, well, the other person is mistaken. Right? They've seen the facts wrongly. But importantly, Godmer says that that's like, that's a kind of fallback that we go to. That, that, that happens only when understanding in the fullest and truest sense isn't possible. It's only in those cases that we say, well, maybe this is simply what the person thinks. But Godmer thinks that what we're ultimately after in interpretation is to see the truth about the subject matter itself. That's a pretty radical, yeah, pretty, pretty out, there, out there claim. Here's what I want to think about for a second. What would it look like to read a text that way? Suppose I approached a text with the assumption that this text has the truth. This text has some important truth to tell me. And my job in interpreting it, my job in understanding it, is to come to see that truth that this text has to share with me. What would that look like? Yes. Mm -hmm. So this is, certainly that is one of the, the alternative options on the table. And later there's going to be a big kind of famous uh, debate between him and this guy named Jürgen Habermas, who has more of a hermeneutics of suspicion. Yeah, so the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is, which is not Gadamer's view, we find this idea in Nietzsche. We find it in another way in Freud. We find it in another way in Karl Marx is that you should never assume that what the other person is saying is true. Rather, you should see what the other person is saying as just a kind of like expression of or cover for something else that's really going on in the background. Right? Really, what I say is just an expression of my will to power. Or really, if I'm Freud, what I say is just a kind of distorted expression of some kind of weird, you know, sublimated sexual stuff that's going on in my unconscious. Or Marx, right, when I talk, it's really just me expressing my class interests, even if I don't recognize it. So yeah, so the hermeneutics of suspicion says, no, assume it's not true. The real truth is going to be found by going behind what the person says to something else that's really going on. Godmer says the opposite. Godmer says, I not only can, but need to, if I want to understand, approach a text with the assumption that this is saying the truth. So, John 20, 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I mean, it's the most Godamerian verse in the Bible. Yeah, like, good. That's why I've done this. Yeah. And if you don't believe, you're not on the inside. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Yeah, and this is what Godamer says about, he talks about scriptural interpretation. So this is what he says. That the, the meaning of scripture happens only when it provokes belief in us, right? Only when, when, it, when it affects us with its saving or, uh, or redeeming word. Yeah. Good. I guess one thing that occurs to me is that even if understanding is this other kind of more robust thing than just figuring out what's inside the speaker or the author, it wouldn't take away the need for figuring out what the speaker or the author w was trying to say. Like, if you're having a conversation with your spouse, even if your spouse is urging you towards this other thing, you still need to figure out what the opinion is that your spouse is expressing. Yeah, so, so certainly, at least in certain circumstances, that's going to be the case, right? And, and in a face-to-face -face communication, this is particularly true, right? Um, I might very well ask you, what are you trying to say here? Where are you coming from? 
But again, Gadamer is going to say that to the extent that we need to do that, to the extent that we need to kind of take a detour through the psychology of the other person, it is for the sake of getting to the truth about the subject matter. Uh, so it sounds like there's a distinction between communication as self-expression and, and then communication as truth. But why not just communication of information and its veracity is uh, essentially ambiguous or not necessarily relevant? Yeah, good. Part of me wants to say, hold that thought for, for the second thing from Gautamer here that I want to discuss, because I think that's, that's, that's going to get to it. Um, Gautamer's going to suggest that, that this idea that, well, let me just consider the proposition itself. I'm not going to assume it's true. I'm not going to assume it's false. I'm just going to kind of hold it up there as a possibility. He thinks that that rests on a kind of mistaken and overly abstract view about, about how meaning actually works. What, uh, what uh, Gadamer is trying to do here is to encourage us to charitable interpretation. Yeah, good. Right? But charitable interpretation doesn't doesn't assume that the um, that the text is true or that the person is telling the truth. It just it's just a kind of openness to that, right? Uh, yeah. And that so I mean that seems to serve. If it's genuinely charitable interpretation, it would seem that's enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You don't want to assume that they're right. You just want to uh, you just want to be open to their being right. Yeah. So so Gadamer wants to take this a step further than that. He says that we have to approach it with the assumption that they are right. Now this is going to turn out, as I said, to be a defeasible assumption. Right? It might, despite my bef best efforts, turn out that, like, no, there's, there's just no way to construe this in the way that it come, to make it come out right. But you're right to point here to the principle of charity. Right? This, is, um, this is part of the idea that Gadamer has. Right? One way to think about what charitable reading means is that, it, let me put it maybe in this way. Right. Suppose I'm reading through a text and I come across a passage that doesn't make sense or that seems to be just obviously wrong or mistaken to me where it seems like the author is saying something dumb. If you're reading charitably, in Gadamer's sense at least of charitably, if, if, if you're reading the way Gadamer thinks we ought to read, the idea is that my default reaction to that, my first response is going to say, is going to be to assume that the problem here is with me, not with the text. When the text sends something incomprehensible or something that just strikes me as, as wildly implausible, my first response should not be, boy, what a dummy this guy is. It should be, what a dummy this guy is. <laughs> I should start asking myself, what am, what's going on here? What assumptions am I making? What prejudices, is Gadamer's term, am I holding on to that are blocking me from seeing the truth that this text wants to tell me about? Because again, I'm going in with the operative assumption that this has something true to tell me. So if I can't see that truth, the problem must be with me and my seeing. And in this way, Gadamer says, when I read, I always put questions to the text. And in the process of doing so, <clears throat> excuse me, the text puts questions to me. I become the one who is interrogated. I become the one who is called into question by my encounter with the text. And in doing this, I come to recognize all these things that were going on in the background of my thinking that I didn't even recognize. Right? 
and I can suspend those so that now maybe I can get a vision of, get a glimpse of what it is that this text is trying to tell me. So that's the first, we gotta, gotta move here so we can get through everything. That's the first big idea from, oh yes, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, well, it strikes me that this is a, that's a scary way to read any old text. Yeah. But when I think about biblical interpretation, that's the way I've been trained to think about the Bible my whole life is like, read it and assume it's true. Yeah. And if I, if I have an issue with it, that's me. That's yeah. The, Good. So that, that's exactly right. This way of reading probably for us at least, is scarier when applied to non-biblical texts than biblical ones. The idea that I would go into the biblical text assuming it's true seems to us okay. The way one, one commentator put it that, that I like is that Gadamer, for Gadamer, every text is a scripture in a certain sense, right? That we ought to approach all reading with the kind of charity that religious believers typically apply to scripture. Now, I think there's still an important difference here in this respect. We said a second ago that when I'm reading Plato or I'm reading Homer, it's still possible that even after I try my very best to see how this could be true, yeah, I got nothing, right? I just can't, I can't find the way <clears throat> to make this whole thing come out as being true or make any sense. And in that case, Gautamer says, the fallback that we go to, that we have to go to, is say, well, the author must be mistaken in this respect. Even there, though, he says, right, the goal needs to be to see that mistake as revealing still kind of a truth that's behind it as, as much as we can. Um, but what I want to suggest is that when we're reading the Bible, that's not an option, right? Oh, you know, Paul must have just been, you know, having a bad day here. and must have just been confused about that. I think that move's not an option when we come to Scripture, even though it is with other things. All right, so that's, right, so first really controversial idea from Gautamer, but one that's helpful here, is that the point of reading is truth, to find the truth about the subject matter, not simply to find what the author's opinions about the subject matter are. So here's the second, the second idea that's, that's relevant to this. Not only do we need to find that truth that the author, or that the text is, is revealing to us, but Gadamer thinks that necessarily the way that truth presents itself, the way that truth is understood, is going to be different for each person. Right? So why can't we just consider the kind of abstract, you know, disembodied, disconnected proposition? Because Gadamer is going to say that, that understanding is not to be, that just doing that is not genuine understanding. Right? So this is the second claim, and this is that idea I referenced before, that all understanding is application. You don't understand something until you have applied it to your own life. Now this is counter, again, to the way we typically think about interpretation. We typically think that first you understand what the text says kind of on its own terms. You recognize, okay, the text is making this claim or making this directive. And now the second step is to take that thing I've understood and connect it up to myself in my own life. Understanding doesn't actually work that way. That first step of understanding without relating the thing to myself never actually happens. So here's again a, a, a story to maybe illustrate this. This one's not hypothetical. So when I was a senior in high school, I was up for 
the scholarship from like our local energy cooperative out in the country where I lived. It's kind of an unusual thing. And part of the, the deal for getting the scholarship was I had to go and do an interview with like the president or CEO of the energy co-op. And so I go in there, you know, and he asks me a bunch of questions about my interests and stuff like that. And then he's like, well, right before we end, I've got this, this trivia question that I always like to ask all the applicants for, for this scholarship to see, to see how intelligent they are. He says, I'm wondering if you can, it was, you know, on a bit of a power trip here, maybe. <laughs> he said, I was wondering, do you know the meaning of the phrase, phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny? And I, I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> Now, this may come as a surprise to, to some of you, but back when I was in high school, I was a little bit of a smart aleck. And thankfully, right, I've completely outgrown that now. Right, so, so, after, right, so after hearing this question and, and recognizing that I had no idea, right, my response was, well, I'm pretty sure it means that phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny. <laughs> What was wrong with my answer here? I mean, after is it not true that the phrase phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny means that phylogeny recapitulates ontogeny? Well, so it's circular reasoning, but I wasn't asked to prove anything here. I was just asked to state the meaning of something. Didn't I do it? What could be a better statement of the meaning of that sentence than what I gave him? Okay, yeah, so it seems like I need to translate it into common English. How come? Yeah, right, good. Because understanding involves more than just parroting or regurgitating or entertaining some proposition. Right? This comes up a lot when you teach, right? Your students always want to just write down the definition that you, that you put on the board and then just regurgitate that back to you on an exam. And if you're good at memorizing stuff, you can do that. You can do that all day long without ever actually understanding anything, right? Understanding is more than just regurgitation. It's more than just cognitively relating yourself to some proposition. What more do you need to do, right? If, if understanding is not just a matter of me having this idea or this proposition before my consciousness, wh what is it? What additional thing do I need? Peter said I need to translate it into common English. How come? Okay, I don't get any meaning out of it until I do that. I don't understand it until I do that. Yeah, good, right? Because to understand something, I have to put it together with. I have to relate it in some way to what I'm already familiar with, right? I have to, as it were, make a place for this thought, make a place for this truth within my kind of mental space. I have to find where it goes, which may mean, as we said a second ago, kind of rearranging things to make a place for it. That's what understanding involves. 
right? It's not just considering some abstract proposition. And this is what Gadamer means when he says that all understanding is application. You don't understand until you have taken the idea or the truth and related it to your own life, related it to the way that you view the world, related to the particular situation that you find yourself in. Not just because that's a nice thing to do, right, or that's step two, but because until you've done that, you haven't understood it at all. And I think that this idea is part of what justifies or part of what undergirds the legitimacy of figural interpretations, right? Think about us living today, reading, say, um, right, say the, the, the story in Genesis, right, where... Um, you sold into slavery, and it's end, it ends with, right, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Right? Okay, so here's a proposition, right? We might even translate it into, right, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks or whatever. Now, here's what I want to suggest. If you don't see the connection between that and Christ's death on our behalf, right, <laughs> If you don't recognize that this feature of God, his ability to bring good out of evil, is realized in its most full and true way with the death of Jesus on our behalf, then you haven't understood it, right? You haven't seen what this is trying to say. You have not integrated it into your life. That's a requirement for us to understand. But obviously it wasn't a requirement for the original readers of Genesis to understand. They, they couldn't have understood it in that way. For them, the charge would have been to relate it and connect it to what they were familiar with, right? the, the works of God that they knew about. So we don't understand at all, Godmer thinks, until we take the truth that the text wants to express to us and find a place for it in our own lives. Figural reading is, I think, at least one example of doing there are probably other ones as well. But the upshot of this is that understanding not just can, but always involves going beyond the author, going beyond the original context. Why? Because the way that I need to rearrange things, the way that I need to make space for this truth in my thinking is necessarily going to be different from the way that they needed to rearrange things to make space for that truth in their thinking. Their heads are different than our heads. <laughs> Right? So they've got to be reshaped in different ways. All right. So let's try to put a bow on this. Because we're supposed to end around 1030, is that right? Okay, yeah. So, okay, yeah. So we've got a few minutes here. So, so let's, let, let me try to, to, to wrap it up in this way. Um, so I've been trying to explain here why it is that Gadamer thinks, as, as he puts it, that we always understand in a different way if we understand it all. Right? That understanding is necessarily different for each reader, and therefore different from what the author would have intended. There are many people who draw that same conclusion for very different reasons. So someone like Jacques Derrida, for example, who some of you might have heard of. He thinks that, no, you shouldn't care about what the author intended. You shouldn't limit yourself to that because that takes the text way too seriously. Right? Derrida thinks, look, this idea that texts have a meaning for us to discover, 
that's a relic of old ways of thinking, right? Now in our postmodern age, we recognize that all a text is or ever could be is just a kind of plaything for our imaginations. So that's what leads Derrida to the conclusion that, that we shouldn't be limited by the author's intentions. But Gadamer draws that conclusion for the exact opposite reasons, right? For him, limiting ourselves to the author's intentions, limiting, limiting ourselves to what this text could have meant in its original context, doesn't take the text seriously enough. It fails, he says, to treat the text as a thou, to treat the text as something that is addressing me, something that is calling me to change, calling me to think and live and love differently. And it's only when I do that that I've really understood it all. Right. So a text, and I think this is particularly true of the scriptural text, for Gadamer is not just this dead thing. It's not just this relic of what some people in the past happened to think. Right. Instead, as one very early Gadamerian put it, right, we might think that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing even to the dividing of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and quick to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. So you have the idea here, right? What is the word of God for? It is to divide us. It is to pierce us. But precisely us, right? Not the ancient Israelites, not the original audience. It's there for us. It's there to pierce me. And I have encountered it as scripture only when I let it do that. So I, I wish we had more time for questions here. A um, couple more minutes, maybe, or should we just call it here? What do, something you really <coughs> want to share. Um, let's do it. Beyond the scriptures, you don't understand this horrible text until you join this horrible. Yeah, cause. good. So, good. So, yeah, so this is the common objection to this, right? What about Mein Kampf, right? When I, when I read that, right? To understand Mein Kampf, do I really have to see the truth of what Hitler was up to? And I think what we want to say is, yeah, that's what it would take. Now, I have not read Mein Kampf, right? <laughs> I will confess. My sense, though, is that right, Mein Kampf just doesn't admit of being read in that way, right? There, right? When I try to genuinely understand Mein Kampf, when I try to see the truth that it is showing me, it, it just doesn't work. Which is to say that Mein Kampf cannot be understood, right? And we say this is reflected in the idea that we read, this is nonsense, right? This is nonsense. This, this doesn't make sense. Now, I can treat it as this is just the expression of this, you know, very wicked and deluded and, you know, psychotic man's mental states. And, and certainly you can read a text that way if you want, as, as a window into someone's psychology. But I would suggest in the case of Mein Kampf, that's, that's all it can be read as. It can only be read as kind of a relic of what someone ha happened to think. It can't actually be read as a text in the full sense at all. Yeah, I think that's what Gottenberg would say about that. Okay, thank you so much, Greg. Thank you. This was really, really helpful. Thanks. <laughs> if any
anything, I know how to pronounce Gadamer's name now. So, so <laughs> some people say Gadamer as well. Um, oh, do they? Both, okay. Yeah, both pronunciations are okay. I was thinking that was my Chicago accent, Gadamer. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, I just think this was really, really wonderful. I wish we had next week to just kind of go back over the whole series and talk about how it impacted your own Bible reading. Um, maybe at some point we'll get a chance to do that. But I hope that you carry with you all that we've learned about how to read scripture and how, to, how it can pierce our hearts if we do go beyond just what the um, plain truth might be communicating and get to what behind it, what God is trying to communicate to us. Because we know he is the author of the scriptures, even though you know this whole idea of inspiration definitely used all these different human voices and their voices come through as their own voices and yet somehow it just all fits together and that to me is just the testimony of God that we can take something that was written in Genesis and you know almost 2,000 years ago and say yes that's for me today there's not a lot of literature that is able to do that and that's because God is the author, and it's the Holy Spirit who guides us in that reading, um, the Holy Spirit who reigns us in. And of course, we have learned what are the parameters. And we know that one of the parameters is our creeds, and one of the parameters is the Ten Commandments, truths that are, that are solid truths, that are plain truths, that have come through um, thousands and thousands of years, and we read scriptures against those, but we also read them to find out what is in the text that is for me today. So I really hope that's all that you've gotten a lot out of that. And thank you so much for coming. We are going to have a Lenten series start two weeks from today. Um, it's The working title is Law and Grace Pursuing Virtue. And Dr. Bob Roberts, Mr. Virtue himself, is going to be leading um, the teaching on that. Uh, we're gonna have a series of speakers, but he's gonna be putting that series together. So. Thank you so much.